welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Today's show is Big Oil, Mickey Mouse, and Fascism in Latin America. Our guest is Mary Jo McConaughey, author of a new book, The Tango War, The Struggle for the Hearts and Minds and Riches of Latin America During World War II, published by St. Martin's Press. Our music for the show will be, unsurprisingly, tango, performed by the Rodolfo Biaggi Orchestra. But we'll also take a turn to the left with a samba for our closing song. This is Cielo, or Sky, with singer Andres Fagas from 1939. Let's start with the fact that what we don't know keeps hurting us. Mary Jo McConaughey's The Tango War fills an important gap in U.S. awareness of World War II history, Beginning in the 30s, both the Allied and Axis powers were well aware of the need to control not just the hearts and minds, but also the resources of Latin America. The region's oil, rubber, and industrial diamonds were necessary to feed the war machines of the so-called civilized nations. The fight was often dirty. Residents were captured to exchange for U.S. prisoners of war, and rival spy networks shadowed each other across the continent. At all times, it was a tango war in which each side closely shadowed the other steps. We'll hear about the Mexican Revolution, about U.S. oil barons choosing Nazism over Mexican sovereignty, about Henry Ford's anti-Semitism and his hubris laid bare in the jungles of the Amazon. We hear about political kidnapping or trade bait by the U.S. State Department called Quiet Passages. We hear about Walt Disney and Orson Welles as proposed propagandists. And we'll end with the fact that Catholic bishops helped Nazis escape arrest because their response against communism meant supporting Christian fascists. Vida, cansado de sufrir, te vengo a reprochar por lo que me ha brindado. A golpes aprendí el otra maldad, aunque quise alejarlo. Cielo, yo siento aquí un dolor. In our first segment, we'll discover how Big Oil contributed to the reaction against the Mexican Revolution and its historic constitution, as it worked to undermine Mexican sovereignty in order to protect profits. This revolution, one you've likely not heard of if you've been educated in the United States, has been characterized as one of the greatest upheavals of the 20th century, resulting in an important program of social reform. Of course, much of this was swept away with a neoliberal reform process that started in the 1980s, a familiar tale all over the world. The shadows of the tango war keep dancing. And now, Big Oil, Mickey Mouse, and Fascism, The Tango War, with Mary Jo McConaughey on Interchange on WFHB. Thanks for joining me on Interchange, Mary Jo McConaughey. Thank you. I'm glad to be here, Doug. Do you mind sharing a bit about your work, um, what you're writing, how your writing is shaped by who you are, and maybe how you're shaped by it as well? That might be a long question, but it's part of the interesting aspect of journalism, I think. Who we are as we go into that task is important. Yes. Well, I had been covering Latin America for uh, 30 years. Uh, when I got the idea for this book, I think it had always been simmering underneath all the news stories that I was covering. 
because I'd hear tidbits about World War II in Latin America, but could never follow them up uh, because of the press of daily work. And uh, my father, who had been a naval officer during World War II, and of course was based in many places, but also told anecdotes. He was a great storyteller uh, about uh, his time in Latin America. And at a certain point, he was gone, and I couldn't ask him any more questions. And I wanted to find out more about World War II in Latin America, and I could not find a single book that could give me the big picture, that could tell me what had happened there. So I decided to to write the book that I wanted to read. Is there a politics to your work? Uh, you know, it's, it's again one of those questions that we we kind of uh, I think struggle with in media is to try to understand the person and their points of view as they go about doing their work. What I like to do is to go under the uh, under the surface a bit. At, it's what we used to call at Pacific News Service the chicken's eye view seeing things from the bottom, for instance, when I cover the war in El Salvador or in, in Guatemala during the 80s, I spent a lot of time in the villages, in places that were under fire, getting to know the people who were the the largest part of the population affected by these wars. I always, of course, filed the big news when the military was doing this or that. But uh, if I felt I could contribute anything, it was to see how uh, war policies, even economic policies, affect uh, ordinary people. If that's politics, that's my politics. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, it's important. Uh, Ordinary people are often left out of these stories. Mm -hmm. That's what I tried to do in the Tango War, too was to uh, give another point of view on what well-known names like Roosevelt and Rockefeller and, and J. Edgar Hoover did during those years, but also some people you've never heard of mm-hmm. yet who felt the effects directly of World War II in Latin America. Well, uh, I like, I think at some point in the book, you quote Mark Twain or a quote attributed to Mark Twain about uh, America going to war so it's uh, people can learn geography. Right. He said that uh, uh, war is God's way of teaching man geography. (laughs) Well, I I guess I specified America there and he didn't he didn't do so, which is surprising in line with the Mark Twain quote to having been born in 1968 and grown up in a period of um, I don't know. It seems to me as I look back on it, just a period of rank ignorance in my own education, Um, you know, the geography I would have learned from from that period. It feels like, um, you know, there was the, the Iran hostage controversy. We, uh, the PLO was in the news all the time. And then the Falklands, you know, <laughs> that's, that's, right. my, that's my war geography right there. I, I was born after the war. I probably, most of the people listening to us were born after the war. And we, by the way, the war, mm-hmm. you can see that I'm still calling World War II the war mm-hmm. because in, in in fact, it's it's become that a metaphor for so much, uh, such a turning point. And you know, uh, our take on World War II, I feel safe to say, is that uh, we won. <laughs> What's to talk about? You know, except that 
it's an endless fount of of books and articles that seems rather uh, fathomless uh, uh, books and, and, and material about World War II. But it's always important, I think, to look back at history and to understand that, for instance, in World War II, 1939, 40, 41, it was not clear at all that quote unquote, our side, that is the allies, we're going to win this thing. Mm -hmm. It strikes me always the, you know, that is the way in which you have to kind of put yourself back in time if you can, you know, step outside of your own understanding of the world, which is always narrow and always contextual and always in your own time to try to think, you know, what is the world like at this period before all of these other things have happened? It's very, very hard to do. So it's a, it's a great service that you perform in this book to try to put us back into those places with the, the, the time frame, the geography, the the sort of mix of people, the German, the Brazil, the you know the all over the place. Uh, this kind of strange mix that I don't think people really think about. Right? How tangled the world is. I'm Doug Storm. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Big Oil, Mickey Mouse, and Fascism. And our guest today is Mary Jo McConaughey a career journalist working primarily in Latin America, whose new book is The Tango War, The Struggle for the Hearts, Minds, and Riches of Latin America During World War II. I was going to say it's an easy book without meaning that to be anything other than a compliment, right? <laughs> you know, well-written, uh, easy to read, exciting, interesting, surprising. So uh, it's a great place for people to kind of start to if they've never done it before, start to understand how tangled the world is in that World War II era, pre-World War II as well, but how we in effect are in some ways continually and, and constantly still fighting those particular battles, still maneuvering within that world order. Well, that's the beauty of history, isn't it? Uh, it's not simply time traveling and getting the sense of what it was like to live at that time although that's pretty exciting too. But it's also uh, comparing things that happened to our own world and our own day. And uh, it's that, that's, I think, fast, the fascinating part about reading history is the uh, echoes that one can find in, um, in our own lives because mm -hmm. so many of these things... Uh, uh, it's not the first time that many of them are thought of. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Or that have happened. And it may look a little different, but it still has the same characteristics. Um, we did a show on the 1954 movie Salt of the Earth, which takes place in uh, New Mexico in a, a zinc mining town. It's a, about a, a labor strike. And in one of the scenes there, the Mexican protagonist is angry at the Anglo labor leader who who is always sort of ignorant of the Mexican context. And he, he, he says, you know, when you came into my house, you asked who that portrait was above the, the mantle of a, a relative of mine. And it was the president of uh, or the founder of Mexico, Juarez. Right. And he says, how how upset would you be if I had no idea who George Washington 
is, you know, was. And to that end, and I know this is a, there's a large canvas you've got and we've got to be fairly focused or narrow here on our own uh, program here to, to, to be able to kind of get to some of it to, to entice others to go find the rest of it themselves. But can you, can we give me a little bit of a sketch of the Mexican revolution? That, that kind of surprised me as well. I have some knowledge of Cuban revolution and some revolutions across the world, but, but that again is a, a repetition of how independence is thwarted, right, by by these giant powers. Well, the Mexicans revolted against uh, not only individual dictatorship, but also against a way of life that concentrated, let's put it broadly, the best stuff in the fewest hands, mm-hmm. including land, which was a uh, which was life and death uh, for most most Mexicans. Most Mexicans worked in the countryside. So the Mexican Revolution was extremely bloody. I you know, many, many uh, uh, wars of this type are, you know, brother against brother. Uh, but what came out of it was a marvelous constitution a very democratic constitution that was nevertheless that nevertheless took a long time to put into into place and one of the elements of the constitution that did get put into place was looking at the land and the resources of Mexico as a national good that is a national product something that ought to benefit the people of Mexico. So for my money, the greatest Mexican president, I mean, Juarez was pretty good, but uh, uh, Lázaro Cárdenas was really the person who put, uh, or at least tried to put the main points of that revolutionary constitution into play. What he did really affected World War II. Mm. He he uh, nationalized the oil in Mexico, Oil is one of the riches that I talk about in the Tango War that were absolutely fundamental to the war machines of, of both sides. It's time for a break. This is Cicatrices, or Scars, from 1940. Performed by the Rodolfo Biaggi Orchestra and with Andres Fagas singing. Stay with us on Interchange for more of World War II's Shadow War in Latin America with Mary Jo McConaughey. Fue perfura y se 
lleno de honda amargura y de pena mi Welcome back to Interchange. Our show today is about what author Mary Jo McConaughey calls the Tango War in Latin America, leading up to and during World War II. This was a kind of shadow war between Allied and Axis powers, seeking influence and natural resources in the region. In this segment, big oil is outmaneuvered by little oil in the person of William Rhodes Davis, resulting in Mexico being forced to sell its primary national resource to the Germans. Thanks to a little help from Fred Koch, John Birch Society co-founder and father of Charles and David Koch. Mexican oil was in the hands of big oil, Standard, Shell, Texaco. And Mexico was, you know, Lazaro Cardenas was a Democrat and wanted to sell his oil to England, France, the United States, but was prevented by big oil who resisted this kind of uh, uh, nationalization. Am I going farther than the revolution? Just, <laughs> <laughs> no, that's to... that's perfect. That's where I wanted to go anyway. Was uh, okay. to try to, to to try to move into big oil and how, uh, you know, money in the hands of corporate powers and even a few individuals, uh, again thwarts the the good in uh, or at least the good intentions of, of particular people and nations as well. To as you speak to uh, the interest of of uh, Cardenas to to sell oil to the quote unquote good guys, right? To to be well, a part of Right. Exactly what you're saying. He he had his own kind of, uh, you know, Roosevelt type of, of policies in Mexico, or uh, at least he tried to as, as much as possible. Uh, it's not a perfect parallel, but just as Roosevelt was up against the America First movement and isolationism, which resisted his uh, wanting to help England in the war. Uh, so Cardenas was up against uh, fascist groups in his in his own country, and he finally ended up selling the oil to a small oil businessman who had always fought big oil, and he was just thrilled to be able to kind of snub them by by getting the concessions for Mexican oil. And where could he sell it? But Germany mm-hmm. and Italy. And he went over there and did a, a real uh, resounding campaign to sell it. Uh, the first businessmen's meeting that he walked into to try to raise funds for his effort, he walked in with his arm raised in the Nazi salute. Mm. So he had no problem with um, uh, uh, making himself likable to the Nazis. Mm-hmm. And he built... Uh, fantastic refinery by contracting uh, as his partner in it, uh, Fred Koch, the the father of the Koch brothers, Charles and David, who are much in the news. Right. And so arguably those first victories of Hitler during World War II, all that refined fuel for his Luftwaffe, for his aircraft, the kind that couldn't be produced just anywhere. Uh, came from Mexican oil. Hmm. 
Um, uh, it's kind of an unbelievable story, although uh, at this point in our history, we need to believe these kind of machinations that go on behind the scenes that that are sort of um, given impetus by, again, these these business practices that sort of trump all other considerations, right? So Standard Oil stops Mexico from doing a nationalist, you know, uh, sale of uh, oil to have their own resources and, and profit off of it and be able to use it for its own uh, good. And in the bargain, a guy named, uh, his name is William Rhodes Davis, I believe, mm-hmm. begins the, uh, you know, begins the, uh, I guess, relationship with Hitler and Germany to sort of be able to allow Mexico to sell its oil uh, wherever it can. Uh, as you say, mm-hmm. Cardenas does not wish to do this, but he has no other national resource to make money off of, right? Precisely. Right? So he has to, to do it. Ironically, Standard and Texaco were selling under the table yes. uh, uh, to to the Reich. And, uh, but one thing they did not want was for this Mexican precedent to stand. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the oil was so cheap right. in Latin America. They had to continue access to it. It cost $1.90 a barrel to produce uh, oil in the States, for instance, and only 87 cents in Venezuela. Mm. So if this were to catch fire, uh, the big companies would lose some of their profit. Mm-hmm. Well, let's 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 make that clear, right? It's one of those, again, one of those ways in which you say, "Hmm," right, about your life and and the world that it, that's organized around you in the in Western countries in the U.S. We have uh, again Standard Oil, sta- you know, deciding and and the other oil companies as well that uh, instead of you know just dealing with a nationalized oil program, they'd, one, um, rather stop that as an idea even, stop that as a practice, while at the same time they are participating uh, just like Mexico has ends up doing in supporting the strategic uh, initiatives of the Third Reich at the time. They are the ones that, that sort of support uh, Nazi Germany's war efforts by these oil sales, but must put their foot down against uh, sort of a Mexican collective action. Precisely, precisely. And much of the subsequent look at the resources of Latin America followed the line of um, not only getting them uh, things like, like tungsten, platinum, uh, rubber, the huge one, not only getting them for the allies, but denying them to the enemy, mm-hmm. denying them to the Reich and, and the Italians and the Japanese, because Japan really had its eye on Latin America as a trading partner. Some countries were already selling more of certain products to Japan than they were to the United States. And Germany was way ahead in being a customer for for rubber, for instance, Mm. which is absolutely essential if you're going to wage a war. I'm Doug Storm. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Big Oil, Mickey Mouse, and Fascism. And our guest today is Mary Jo McConaughey, a career journalist working primarily in Latin America, whose new book is The Tango War, The Struggle for the Hearts, Minds, and Riches of Latin America during World War II. 
Yeah, that's uh, we can go ahead and turn into rubber. It's one of those, again, surprising things I had not thought about. And, you know, in, not that you necessarily think about these things. Rubber is a commonplace for us at this point, right? Yeah. And it's, mm-hmm. uh, again, it's another sort of revolutionary idea, rubber essential to waging war. Right. So so tell us the story of rubber then. Well, I mean, first of all, it's very important for 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 war. You've got a a fighter bomber uh, needs almost a ton of rubber. A battleship has 20,000 parts which are made of rubber or contain rubber. And uh, it, it can't be just synthetic rubber. And by the way, the United States was way behind Germany and Russia at the beginning of the war in making synthetic rubber. Uh, why? Because we had all of these natural sources of it um, in, uh, for instance, in the South Pacific. And when the Japanese invaded those regions, we had to look elsewhere. And the Brazilian Amazon was a place that really could produce the amount of rubber that was needed. Uh, Unfortunately for the Allies, it was in the hands of uh, Getulio Vargas, who was a a fascist uh, leader of his country and admired uh, Mussolini especially. Um, and he wasn't too anxious um, to to provide that rubber to the Allies. But through a rather uh, 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 intricate but sometimes very interesting, fascinating, I think, uh, machinations, the United States was able to get a diplomatic agreement with um, Brazil, and Brazil recruited 50,000 quote-unquote, rubber soldiers. They made it like a military uh, uh, event, and they sent them into the Amazon. Now, these rubber soldiers were people from an area that was literally starving to death nearby the northeastern Brazil. So they volunteered, although you could question exactly how much of uh, free will went into uh, uh, the decisions of people that just needed a, you know, anything to work at. And they went into the jungle, harvested the rubber, uh, provided more than any other country in 43, for instance, although eventually synthetic rubber and the African rubber helped to assuage the need. However, the cost was very, very high for the rubber soldiers. Of 50,000 who went into the Amazon, only 20,000 survived the war. They fell to malaria, to jaguars, to piranhas in the rivers. Uh, they didn't have the moves or the knowledge of the rainforest uh, that natives of the Amazon had. And they were just not immune to the endemic diseases mm. of, of the jungle. So there was quite a high cost in human lives. Yeah, this these are the uh, the tappers in particular that are sent in. Pre- Precisely, yeah. Yeah, and it's it, it's interesting. It's a familiar story, right? How the you know the particular uh, human labor costs um, you know make the world we're currently living 
impossible, right? The, oh, and the way yeah. that we denigrate them along the way until we give them some sort of propagandized perspective. The, you are now doing the noble work for the cause. Exactly, precisely. And, you know, I've gone into the jungle with some of these rubber tappers, and you, you get up in the middle of the night, it's cold, it's wet, even in the jungle, and they go tree to tree because it's not uh, like a plantation that you might find in Malaysia or some other countries. In the Amazon, the rubber trees have to grow apart from each other with other trees in between. And these people that I went in with were sons of uh, sons and grandsons of the rubber soldiers. Uh, they just ended up staying there because they had no way to get back home. <laughs> so you had two and three generations. But what you said is absolutely right. The work that goes into just a pound of rubber is uh, is tremendous, natural rubber. Mm -hmm. Now, synthetics can't take the place entirely of natural rubber because a product needs a certain amount of natural rubber, even if it's made of synthetic. It's time for another break. This is Humiliation or Humiliation from Rodolfo Biaggi with singer Jorge Ortiz from 1941. When we return, we'll hear more about rubber as a necessary war resource and the ignorance of Henry Ford. Stay with us on Interchange on WFHB. Sabía del amor que se arrodilla, balbuceando ruegos manso de altiveces. Fue de ese modo con flaquezas que aún me humillan, como en mi delirio te llegué a querer. Hoy que despierto frente a tu liviana pasión en mi conciencia, que sintió de lleno el rigor brota despecho de este amor que me envilece, el grito rebelde de mi humillación. Odio este amor que me humillo a tu santo ojos. Odio este amor que me enseño a suplicar. Ansia torpe que me arrodilló bajo el yugo de tu pretensión. Odio este amor que al doblegar mi entero... Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. Our guest today discussing her new book, The Tango War, is Mary Jo McConaughey. In this segment, we'll hear more about Brazil's rubber resources through the story of Henry Ford's failed rubber plantation, Fordlandia. But he had high hopes, and we'll find out how a law from 1798 was used to justify political kidnapping by the Roosevelt administration during World War II. Bendigar 
the rubber is again one of those um, almost like a gateway drug to to <laughs> development, right? Uh, it's one of those right. things uh, that uh, rubber leads pretty much to frontier rapine in the Amazon, right? Uh, Dis mm. Disney makes a, a, a documentary film about it. I think the Amazon awakens and it awakens right. uh, it awakens the uh, the industrialist war machine to plunder as much as anything else, huh? Well, it certainly provides a need for a war machine, no matter on what side. And uh, Brazil, as a nation, got something out of it, uh, not only some income, but also with their alliance with the United States, uh, the promise of helping to begin their industrialization, mm. which was huge because now it's, you know, one of the wealthiest countries uh uh, in the in the world, uh, Roosevelt promised a beginning of a steel industry, but the individuals who are on the ground, the people from the chicken's eye view, mm -hmm. uh, uh, pay for that kind of mm -hmm. industrialization and progress. Right, it's the, the nation gets to be a certain thing; the people, not so much. Exactly, right, in this right. case, for sure. Yeah. Well, tell us about Henry Ford while we're at it, right? Fordlandia is in this uh, in, in Brazil and, and rubber, right? Right. Fordlandia is a pattern not to follow. <laughs> uh, Henry Ford decided to build a kind of assembly line pr production of rubber in the jungle. But as I said a moment ago, you can't plant rubber in rows in the jungle, uh, in the Amazon jungle, that is, because there's a certain kind of disease that will attack one tree if it's surrounded by other trees. It doesn't kill it or let, let alone jump to another tree. In the kind of assembly line operation that Ford assumed would uh, produce not just all the rubber he needed for the tires for his cars, but also a great deal of profit. That system just wouldn't work. Nature wouldn't have it. And eventually, Fordlandia, named modestly after <laughs> himself, <laughs> um, fell. And you had these to this bizarre uh, picture of totally Midwestern American-looking towns in the middle of the Amazon uh, for a few years. Until they served no more, no more purpose, and that huge project failed. Yeah, yeah. It's one of those, uh, you know, Henry Ford, uh, you know, has a hammer and sees everything is a nail. <laughs> you know, the the monoculture doesn't work. Right, yeah. and and Henry Ford, in by the way, had great admiration for Hitler, mm -hmm. and uh, wrote uh, some absolutely heinous books that had absolutely heinous articles, anti-Semitic articles written in the newspaper he owned. Um, it, it, it's, it was difficult to believe until, until I actually saw what, you know, the books that he had produced, mm -hmm. uh, the, the Jewish problem, for instance. Right. Um, uh, which uh, reputedly was on Hitler's bookshelf. Mm, you know, it's one of those things again that you confront in history that you're you're often not ever told these things, right? Henry Ford is like uh, America personified. Oh, uh, hey, yeah, yeah, I drive a Ford. 
<laughs> well, so many people do, uh, but I don't know that they think about Henry Ford or who the man is or what the man means or how the man and his his dreams and visions uh, are, you know, a part of our own corruption in some ways as people. Uh, it's it's hard to kind of, again, untangle these worlds that, that we're sort of stuck in and not, you know, you need to be able to go back and say, you know, what kind of, what kind of world was this? Who was this man who had these crazy ideas or thought that the whole world could be a production line? and all of us be his wage slaves? Well, I think awareness of its presence historically helps us look around at the moment and say, who benefits in, from a war in Syria? Who benefits from a war in Iraq? If we can see clearly who benefited, for instance, from certain parts of the war in World War II, which we can see a little bit more clearly at a distance now, mm -hmm. uh, we can perhaps look around more objectively at what goes on today. Yeah. I'm Doug Storm. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Big Oil, Mickey Mouse, and Fascism. And our guest today is Mary Jo McConaughey, a career journalist working primarily in Latin America, whose new book is The Tango War, the struggle for the hearts, minds, and riches of Latin America during World War II. Uh, let's uh, jump ahead and talk a little bit about the political kidnapping program, the story you tell of uh, Helmut Sapper. That, again, was uh, 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 an eye-opener. Helmut Sapper was the father of a wonderful woman named Maya Sapper, whom I, whom I got to know, as I did get to know many of the individuals that I talk about in the book. Uh, she was born in Guatemala, as was her father, Helmut. They were uh, born in the same room, a generation apart. And Helmut was the son of a German immigrant who came and uh, was one of the Germans who really invigorated the coffee industry, which was like Guatemala's oil. It became its primary trade product, and some of the best coffee in the world comes from Guatemala. Uh, I can tell you because I lived in Guatemala for 13 years, and it's a, it's a beautiful country, a wonderful country, but you do hear people of German ethnicity talk about their land having been taken away from them during the Second World War at the hands of the United States. and. Helmut Sapper was one of those to whom it happened. He and hundreds of others were taken at gunpoint to the United States, uh, targeted because of their German ethnicity, but also because of their economic importance. Post-war, the United States wanted to have less competition economically, and this was one aspect of it. In fact, in Helmut Sapper's case, uh, he actually sued the U.S. government, and one of the papers presented by the U.S. Embassy said, no, there's no political reason for his uh, being forbidden to come back to the country, but he has great economic weight in the country. At any rate, Helmut Sapper and all of these other ethnic Germans, plus a, over 2,000 ethnic Japanese, especially Japanese Peruvians, 
were kidnapped as part of something called, it was a secret program from the State Department called Quiet Passages. Why? To trade them for U.S. citizens that were caught behind enemy lines. They were considered enemy aliens under an 18th century U.S. law that was created to to prosecute pirates. But to prosecute these people or to hold them incarcerated or to trade them, to use them for trade bait uh, like hostages, you had to get them into the country first, into the United States. And that's why they were kidnapped, brought inside without papers. They were forced to leave their documents behind. And so they entered as undocumented aliens. And since they were of those ethnicities, they were called the enemy and ended up in concentration camps, uh, especially the Japanese Peruvians in a concentration camp in uh, the middle of the Texas desert called Crystal City, mm. some of them for years. Right. Well, it's again another thing to stress that uh, I don't I don't know how often you can be shocked by these things. You know, to talk about uh, FDR again. You know, everybody's hero generally, right? The the liberal hero of of, of our of our past. Uh, to imagine. Um, you know, reaching back into, I think it's 1798, the Alien Enemies Act, uh, to kind of make use of a, a law that's been on the books and, and one would have thought, um, uh, done away with in many respects, right? But that's kind of the, the function of laws that are left on the books. They get used again. And they get abused. <laughs> Seems like the only thing that happens with them, actually, right? Um, so, so that's one of the things that, again, uh, just were eye openers. Not they shouldn't be shocking to us at this point, but continue you're like, well, what we experience may may seem faster, stronger, harder, uh, more extreme, uh, but it's it's not right. It's happened and it continues to happen uh, in the past, and that's why your book is essential in that in this way. I think it, you're just like, wow, this is and always has been the sort of path of this kind of uh, institutional reach. That's a good way to look at it because. I, for instance, I call that kind of kidnapping and bringing to to uh, another country uh, the seeds of extraordinary rendition, mm-hmm. which is a tactic used in the quote-unquote terror war. And look at the separation of children, which mm-hmm. goes on now, which was used at that time. One of the women I interviewed in Lima a very, very well-respected, outstanding professor in her late 70s, a lot of dignity, after talking to her for several hours, said, "Uh, you know, I used to ask my mother and my father, I'm sorry, I used to ask my mother and my aunt, where's daddy? I mean, this woman is talking at at an advanced age about her childhood, remembering it like it was yesterday. And she said, you know, I needed my father every day of my life, and I haven't had him. So that lifelong harm hmm. that 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 persists with that kind of tactic or that kind of policy uh, is something that, you know, came in World War II and uh, arguably is going on right now. Yeah. It's time for our final break. This is Te Odio, I Hate You. 
again from the Rodolfo Biaggi Orchestra with singer Alberto Lago from 1942. When we return, the propaganda program of Nelson Rockefeller featuring Walt Disney and Orson Welles. Stay with us. ni sentido hay hechos que no tienen explicación así al conocerte mi gran cariño sin ley ni motivo de golpe nació viniste a emparullarme la dulce existencia pues yo sin tus engaños ya era feliz parece mentira que siendo tan linda guardes ese fondo tan bajo y tan ruin te odio Maldita, te odio como antes te adoré Dios quiera que un día volvieras a mí Buscando refugio vencida sin fe Entonces podría cobrarme tu traición Es tanto lo que te odio Welcome back to Interchange For our final segment we'll talk about propaganda And the Good Neighbor Program Nelson Rockefeller's Office of the Coordinator of Inter-American Affairs sent goodwill ambassadors like filmmakers Walt Disney and Orson Welles to Latin America to share the cultural goodwill of the U.S. towards its southern neighbors. Can you guess which of these movie directors proved a disappointment to the masters of war? At one time, propaganda was not a bad word. It was uh, a concept that uh, expressed uh, your way of showing uh, a population uh, uh, who you were and trying to convince that population to come over to your side in a crisis or in a war. Mm -hmm. And that was certainly the case in the Second World War, where the uh in in Latin America where the Germans were far ahead uh in in propaganda at the beginning their uh Goebbels uh, uh ministry of propaganda uh had reached into newspapers into films uh, they used to have the buyer uh pharmaceutical trucks with generators going around showing uh, films about the Reich to small villages, which were, which was thrilling because people had never seen film before. Mm -hmm. uh, I even in an old archive found uh, newspaper articles uh, by Adolf Hitler, which of course was put out by Goebbels propaganda group. But the 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 point is that when Nelson Rockefeller looked around Latin America, where the Rockefeller family, of course, had a lot of uh, commercial interests. Uh, and he saw what was happening, he realized that there had to be, or he felt there had to be something done to counteract uh, uh, all of this so that post-war trade 
would be in the hands of the United States. And one of the things he did, uh, because he only did it in Latin America, so I talk about it extensively, was bring uh, goodwill ambassadors to Latin America on the human level to show who we were mm-hmm. and and also to show Americans who Latin Americans mm-hmm. were. Right, right. So, this is yeah. the uh, CIAA program? Right, mm-hmm. right. How, what's does, the, what does that stand for it again? It doesn't stand for uh, <laughs> uh, the Central Intelligence Agency. Adde- addendum, right? <laughs> right. It stands for the um, uh, Coordinator of um, Inter-American Affairs. Relations. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it, it, and he was the head of it. Mm-hmm. This and, is part of uh, Roosevelt's Good Neighbor program. Yes, he wrote a memo to Roosevelt and said this one page memo and said this is why and this is how. And he funded some of it with his own money. Mm-hmm. And he got everyone from Henry Luce, who was the um, uh, founder of Time and Magazine and Life Magazine, to help produce similar magazines for popular consumption. Remember, that was the time when newsstands uh, were were laden with reading material, right. uh, not because I mean there was no internet and people also listened to the radio. Right. So he brought down Orson Welles, mm-hmm. the golden voice of uh, mm-hmm. uh, U.S. radio and the famous producer, and very famously he brought down Walt Disney. Right. These are two uh, two in particular magicians, uh, Wells and Disney. In the chapter you call "Seduction," that's a nice title for for, for this. And and uh, you know it's a nice it's a nice counterpoint, right? Disney and Wells in particular, because uh, one, as you say, was a spectacular success as far as propaganda goes, and the other, uh, a spectacular failure. Precisely, Disney was the spectacular success. No surprise there. Well, first of all, everybody knew Mickey Mouse, and who was Disney? He was Mickey Mouse's father. And (laughs) that that way, uh, Disney already had uh, an entree into the hearts of Latin Americans, and he brought with him 15 people called El Grupo, they called themselves, and many of them had never even traveled before. And they were knocked out, but by what they saw in Latin America as artists, uh, the colors, the uh, the music, and so much of it they incorporated into films that became very popular in the United States. Uh, the uh, Tres Amigos, the, the Three Caballeros, and these films showed Latin Americans as friendly. It did not eliminate the stereotypes but they were good propaganda. I'm Doug Storm. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Big Oil, Mickey Mouse, and Fascism. And our guest today is Mary Jo McConaughey, a career journalist working primarily in Latin America, whose new book is The Tango War, The Struggle for the Hearts, Minds, and Riches of Latin America during World War II. But Orson Welles, in contrast to Disney, ended up being a terrible enemy of Rockefeller. Why? Because he loved the samba. He fell in love with the samba. And to him, the samba, which was the background music of Carnival, which was the film he was going to do, 
had its roots in African Brazilians. And at that time, hanging around with black African Brazilians in the favelas, the black neighborhoods, was not the picture that either Rockefeller or the Brazilian elite wanted to present of its country. Mm -hmm. And uh, Paramount, everyone uh, fought against Orson Welles, and uh, he ended up uh, getting his revenge in the Lady of from Shanghai film uh, <laughs> by lampooning Rockefeller, and Rockefeller ended up characterizing Orson Welles as a man of fantastic talent who really hates my guts. <laughs> well, maybe deservedly so. the uh, The chapter on seduction is a again a fascinating one. The Disney um, actual films that came out of it also interesting. One in which I think Donald Duck has shown uh, what it means to be brainwashed, ironically. Well, uh, yes. yeah. You know, unlike unlike some of the others that we've spoken about early, earlier, some of the other companies and corporations that really made hay during the war, uh, Disney did not take a penny for any of the many, many documentary, training films, uh, public uh, uh, service films that his um, uh, teams made, not only for the United States, but also for Latin America, where these small uh, trucks, just like the old Bayer German trucks that belonged to Rockefeller would go around to the villages and show people films on health and how to farm better and that kind of thing. And people loved them. They'd applaud at the end. Mm -hmm. and, uh, it was it was wonderful, positive propaganda. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, one of the things that um, again strikes you because you have to kind of watch the uh, and as your title indicates, the seduction of a Disney propaganda, right? Uh, even as you say, we move away from particular stereotypical images, you're you're replaced with other stereotypical images, and there isn't what I would call a critical perspective in in that work. And this is where Wells comes in and discovers the truth of a lot of labor policy, the truth of how people are living in Brazil. One of the things you point out throughout is the kind of attempt to whiten the Brazilian population. And Wells flies in the face of that as well, saying, look at this culture that's a magnificent culture, and it's not got anything to do with a whitened culture. Uh, and, and presents that in his film and presents that in his work. And as you say, that is really the beginning of the end of Wells in terms of his, his career in Hollywood. Yes, I would say so. And, and Wells, um, of the two uh, Goodwill Ambassadors, I think was probably trying to show the truer face right. of uh, Brazil, at least. You don't have any, except for the Amazon Awakens, you don't have any people of color in uh, Walt Disney's uh, films. Right. Well, let's uh, let's do one last thing. Let's move to the um, the fact that I think it's well known that many high-profile Nazis found their way to South America, in particular Argentina. Maybe it's less well known how involved the Catholic Church was in this. Uh, so maybe tell us a little bit about the Vatican's role in what is maybe an evil parallel of the Underground Railroad. It's the rat lines. <laughs> yes. In fact, 
uh, even before the end of the war, Nazis were fleeing to northern Italy. Uh, they saw they saw the writing on the wall, and they knew that they were uh, apt to be charged with war crimes. The Catholic Church, not monolithically, uh, but individual bishops in the Catholic Church, decided that these people had to be saved because they were anti-communist. Remember that the church uh, during the Russian Revolution was absolutely decimated, uh, not just the um, not just the property, but uh, individuals, the faithful were killed, the bishops, priests, and uh, uh, objects of piety were desecrated. The bishops knew that they could not live in the same world uh, with communism, and they saw these fascists as allies because who would never give in to communism would be these people who had been fighting communism, that is, the fascists. And they enabled their traveling to Argentina, but also some of them to the United States because the United States fished for uh, ex-Nazis, not because they were ex-Nazis, but because they had uh, expertise in the rocket uh, rocketry and the defense industry. So the United States took a share and a much larger share because they were accepted there uh, were going or went to Latin America with help, with help from the church. And some of them became advisors to some of the dictators that caused the deaths of so many in their anti-communist um, uh, regimes during the Cold War. These are regimes that were supported by the United States. You know, Doug, if there's anything I want to show in the Tangle War, or if there's anything I would like people to come away with, is that war, once it's begun, has no limits in, in space, in geography, or in time. The reverberations come year after year after year. They're not stopped with an armistice or a peace treaty. That's our show. Thanks to Mary Jo McConaughey for joining us to discuss her book, The Tango War, The Struggle for the Hearts, Minds, and Riches of Latin America During World War II. It's published by St. Martin's Press. We'll close with Samba, the music that captivated the young and very famous radio star and film director Orson Welles, convincing him that his work in Latin America as a goodwill ambassador ought to highlight this music. He too wanted the chicken's eye view of a culture. This is Aquarela do Brasil, performed by Enrique Madriguera and his orchestra. A Spanish-born violin prodigy, Madriguera did much to popularize Latin American music in the U.S. He spent time in South America as musical director for Columbia Records, after that working briefly at Havana Casino, before moving to the United States and forming a society-styled dance orchestra in New York. He specialized in Latin or Afro-Cuban music and was later honored with the sobriquet ambassador of music to all the Americas. Next time on Interchange, we'll take a closer look at Orson Welles in Brazil and how his attempts to film cultural traditions from the ground up as Goodwill Ambassador met with such disapproval that it effectively ended his career in Hollywood. Thanks for listening. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Wes Martin is executive producer. 
Stay tuned for The Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB.